A very good morning to all of you. This is a wonderful day that we can come together to worship God. Um, you are, you know, free to uh, sit in your car next to the car. Uh, but if you feel the heat, uh, you are welcome to choose to go to the courtyard area, which is a covered area, and there's a television there. You can see the live streaming uh, from uh, that place, and that is much uh, shaded there. And I think there are like another 40 seats available, so you're welcome to do so as we come together to hear God's Word uh, today. You know, I think most of you would agree whether you're in person or whether you watch the live streaming from a respective home, or whether you'll be watching the recorded sermon later, that we like black and white issues in life because it is always clear-cut. It's so clear. It's black, it's black. White, is white. But, but gray areas are difficult. It is a mixture of black and white. And, and what percentage is black and what percentage is white, it's hard to say. It's hard to determine. And that makes drawing the line uh, much more uh, difficult. Such is the nature of the gray areas. And when we deal with gray areas of life, we often have to deal with it case by case because there's no one solution that fits all. And chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians is one of those chapters that is dealing with one of the gray areas of life. So I want to invite you to turn to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians as we expound on that chapter together as we look at how to deal with gray areas in life. Let me read to you verses 1 to 3 as we think about the first point. Uh, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Dealing with gray areas in life in verses 1 to 3, Paul is reminding us on the number one point is we need to supplement, supplement our knowledge with love. Knowledge alone is not sufficient to give us enough guideline to deal with gray areas. We need to supplement that with love. Verse 8 says, concerning food, Offer to idols, and that is the issue, specific issue with the church in Corinth. And the background is most meat sold in the Corinth marketplace came from sacrificial animals that had been slaughtered at pagan temple ceremonies. Now the question is, can Christians buy it for personal consumption? Can Christians eat it if it was offered in the party or in the weddings? Can Christians participate if the wedding or the party is held in the pagan temple? Because typically people do not have big enough house to host a party or wedding. So they may use the facility in the temple to host that wedding banquet. Would you be willing to participate? And when they offer food that has been offered to the idols, would you eat that food with your clear conscience? How do you resolve that issue? Verses 1 to 3, Paul reminds us that we may have knowledge, but we need to supplement that knowledge with love. Verse 1 says, we know that all of us possess knowledge, that it is a common knowledge. There's only one true God for Christians, and therefore it is not a big deal to eat food offered to the idols in the pagan temple. 
See, it sounds like a standard answer, and the thing with standard answer is that it doesn't solve everybody's special situations. The Corinthians was hoping that knowledge alone is sufficient to build up the church, but unfortunately, knowledge alone actually pops up, leading to pride and oftentimes destroying the faith of other Christians. Now, it doesn't mean that knowledge is bad or knowledge is not important or that Christians should not pursue academic excellence, but knowledge has to be supplemented by love for others to make us more clear and holistic as we approach gray areas. Because love does not puff up. Love builds up, as the scripture says, it builds up the brothers and sisters. It places the welfare of others above yourself. And in that sense, Paul is saying, love is the true way of knowledge. That is the mature way of looking at knowledge and the mature way of responding to uh, gray areas. See, even though the Corinthians were enriched in full knowledge, in chapter 1, verse 5, it reminds them that they are enriched in full knowledge, but their application of that knowledge without love causes the church to have strife, to have division, and unchristian lifestyle. And that's what happened to the church in Corinth. But true knowledge is not merely accumulation of information and data or having a correct theology alone. It compels us to learn to live in love toward all and using our knowledge as a way to serve other people. In verse 2, he reminds them that if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You see, the knowledge pops up the church in Corinth. They feel like we know it all. There's no other options. There's no other ways. And Paul was reminding them, the fact that you said you know it all is the fact that you don't know it all. You don't know the knowledge of love. You know the knowledge of information and data, but love is desperately lacking in the way you deal with this specific issue of food being offered to the idols. And he continues to remind them in verse 3 that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. There's no way we can love God until God knows us and elected us and, and before the foundation of the world so that we can know the love of God. And on that basis, we are able to love God. And because we love God, we begin to be sensitive to the needs of other brothers and sisters and be willing to give up our rights and our freedom for the sake of building them up because love builds up. So our love of God is predicated on God's prior knowledge of us. He knows us before the foundation of the world. I want to remind us today as we, as we are reminded that knowledge needs to be supplemented by love, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that many of us will call it the chapter of love, in verse 2, it reminds us that if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am 
nothing. I come to zero. This is a great reminder for us that when we look at issues of life, we must have data, we must have the right theology, but we also must exercise our love. And we also need to use the same guidelines in terms of knowledge supplemented by love in selection of leadership. That we want leaders who are knowledgeable in God's Word, knowledgeable about life, but with strong characters and personality, with strong love and sensitivity for other people. Instead of choosing leaders who are really, really knowledgeable, but with questionable characters and the ability to love other people and are insensitive to other people. And this is a great reminder that we need to see that holistic approach of that person to be matured enough to be able to lead by example as God uses that person to guide. You know, as Asians, many of us have the tendency to emphasize on education and knowledge. And that is the strength of many of the Asians' community. But unfortunately, sometimes it unwittingly elevate members with advanced degree and neglecting those who are equally qualified, even though they have basic degrees, but they are spiritually matured as well. So as Asians, we need to be sensitive to that so that we will not be overtly emphasizing our knowledge and advanced degree to the neglect of spiritual maturity and love. But you know, knowledge is not the only consideration in dealing with gray areas. We need love. But overemphasis in love may lead to compromise. See, for the weaker brothers, let's not do that. For the weaker brothers, let's not consider that. Let's give in. Let's bend backward. But there are things that we can bend backward for sure. But there are also things that we should not bend at all. And the next section in verses 4 to 6 is an important truth that should never be bended at all. Verses 4 to 6. We need to uphold the uniqueness of God. Verses 4 to 6 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heavens and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That can never be compromised, can never be bended anywhere. We need to uphold the uniqueness of God. Again, in verse 5, reminds us that there's a common knowledge. The common knowledge is that uh, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. You know, this is one of the strongest statements in the Bible that defend monotheism. That means one God only, one creator only. Against all forms of animism or polytheism or henotheism. It means there's only one God. Animism says, well, gods can happen, spirits can dwell in trees and plants and animals and even mountains, so we worship the nature. That's animism. But the Bible says there's one God. No God but one, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father. The polytheism says, well, every religion has a God and they are of equal standing 
and they are all equal and important. You cannot neglect any one of them. But the Bible again reminds us there's one God only. The henotheism says that we have different classes of gods. There are superior gods, there are mediocre gods, there are small gods, and they are all gods. But again, the Bible says there is no God but one. So the emphasis that Paul is trying to remind us today is that the idol lacks any reality because there is no God but one. While the Christians in the church of Corinth argue that, well, since idols are not real and our God is the only true God, why can't we eat the food offered to idols in the pagan temples? And that's an issue that Paul will address beginning in verse 7. But right now, he's trying to give the foundation on the uniqueness of God that can never be compromised. In verse 5, he reminds us that there are false perceptions of God. Verse 5 says, Although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, Paul is not contradicting himself. He told us that there is no God but one. But he recognizes that people do worship the so-called gods and lords. And there are many of them. Either you think that they are in heaven or on earth, and you can call them whatever you want, and it doesn't really matter because they are not real. There is no God but one. Then what is the true perception of the God we worship? In verse 6, he reminds us that yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And that's the true perception of God that Paul is reminding all of us that God is the Father. And we who believe in Jesus Christ, believe in His redemptive work on the cross, are His children. That is a special privilege that He has given us. John chapter 1, verse 12 reminds us that He gave us that privilege to be children of God. And because of that, we call Him Abba Father. And because of that, when the Lord Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, it begins with our Father who art in heaven. He is our Father. But also He reminds us that He is our Creator. He says, from whom are all things. He's the source of all things. He's our Creator. Not only He's our Father, not only He's our Creator, but He's the ultimate reason for our existence. Verse 6 says, for whom we exist. And remember, for whom we exist include the weaker brothers and the stronger brothers in the issue of the food offered to idols. But it's more than that. Paul begins to link a strong link between the Father and the Son. He says Jesus is our Lord. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That God the Father created the world through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and redeemed the world through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here he is reminding us of God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, existing uh, in eternity, and, and, and they work in perfect harmony. Uh, one God 
in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You know, to proclaim the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God in today's world is very challenging. Tolerance in a pluralistic society is the call of our times. And to denounce idolatry uh, is a very difficult message for the world to accept today. For globalization and for all cultures and all ethnicities to be able to live in harmony and in peace, tolerance is called for so that we will not fight, so that we will have less conflicts. There are things that we can tolerate, but in terms of the oneness of God, it's non-negotiable. But we feel the tension in different places, including the United States. You know, Muriel Campbell is the lead pastor of Mentone Baptist Church in Melbourne, Australia. He wrote in Nine Marks Journal, uh, online, online journal, recently that the state of Victoria in Australia, the, 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 the parliament has adopted the conversion and suppression practices bill. Basically, it criminalizes any prayers or conversation in which a person aims to persuade another person that pursuing a certain sexual activity is not the best course of action. You are not allowed to do that. It is not only illegal to pray or speak with an individual about changing their sexual orientation or gender identity, well, unless, unless you, you advise them to embrace it. It's okay to embrace it, but it's not okay to denounce it. The law states that suppression, suppression is also illegal. And how do you define suppression? Suppression means it includes prayer for celibacy. If you pray publicly or pray with an individual for celibacy, for God and the Spirit to give you the power to remain celebrate, that's against the law. And any advice that communicates sexual faithfulness to one's partner, one's spouse, is a matter of holiness, it's a violation of the law. Unbelievable that someday Christians or pastors or leaders in Australia is not allowed to call the members to holiness. Can you believe that? Would it ever come to us as well? I don't know. It says this laws basically target ministry to individuals. Okay? When you do pastoral counseling, when you do pastoral prayer, okay, this is the law that will be uh, biting. They are not targeting groups. So far, it is still okay to preach sermons in church you know, calling people for holiness and calling people to do it God's way. But however, the Victorian government has already indicated that they are prepared to expand the list of prohibition to include sermons in the future. Oh my goodness. That's the challenge that we face today, brothers, sisters, for us who believes in God's word, who believes in the Bible, and those are the challenges. And under that law, if you are convicted, they will bring criminal charges uh, against you, resulting in a prison term of up to 10 years and a fine of 200,000 Australian dollars. 
that's how seriously they take it. So basically, you know, uh, at this point, curbing the pastors from individual counseling and individual prayer or prayer in a worship to call people to holiness according to the teaching of God's word. And that's how difficult it is today. And we can even feel that more and more restrictions and more and more prohibitions can happen in different parts of the world. But for us, but for us, upholding the uniqueness of God is the tenets of our beliefs, is the foundation of our doctrine. For us, calling us to uh, uphold the uniqueness of God means we give ultimate allegiance to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ only. Our allegiance is to Him only. You know, after Paul laid the foundation that love needs to supplement knowledge and the uniqueness of God is to be upheld by all of us, he is now ready to take on the specific gray area in the church in Corinth. And that's in verses 7 to 13, how to care for the weaker members, weaker brothers and sisters. Let me read to you verses 7 to 13. It says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not command us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You know, in verse 7, he says that not all possess this knowledge. The knowledge that says, idol do not really exist as God. And for most of the Christians in Corinth, and for us as well, this knowledge is being upheld. But this knowledge is not shared by everyone in the church in Corinth. On theoretical level, all may believe that an idol is not God, and, but not all share that knowledge in the experiential or emotional level because some Christians in a church in Corinth, they came from pagan background. They have association with idols before they became Christian, it, which, which is a part of their experience. And to eat food offered to idols in a pagan temple, to them, it may feel like their former days of idol worship is being carried into the current experience, even though they have become a Christian and their conscience is weak, their moral consciousness is weak and defiled, they can become defiled and ultimately be destroyed. Destroyed in a sense that they are in the process of being ruined and their relationship with Christ is defiled. It is not pure anymore because their former experiences of idol worship come back to haunt them 
causing them to be weak in their faith to follow Jesus. And knowing that situation, that they are weaker brothers in the congregation, Paul gave three reasons to abstain from eating food offered to idols in the pagan temple. First of all, in verse 8, he reminds us that there's no inherent spiritual advantage in eating or disadvantage in avoiding it. Verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. There is, we are not worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And therefore, the concern of our fellow members take precedence over the kind of food that we eat. Verse 9 reminds us that, but take care that the rights of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We should not demand our rights of freedom in ways that cause our fellow weaker members to sin. Then beginning verse 10, he gave an illustration. It goes like this. A strong brother can eat meat offered to the idol in the pagan temple, and he feels perfectly comfortable. But not the weaker brother. He can't handle that. So the strong brother encourages the weak brother to take up the challenge and try it, hoping that it will embolden the weak brother after a few attempts. Good intention. But the weak brothers could not handle it. He could not eat food offered to idols with good conscience. And that caused him to sin. And that's the illustration that he gave us of what happened in the church in Corinth. He says, what happened when you do that in verse 11, the indiscreet use of freedom damages the spiritual life of the weak brother. Because in Romans chapter 14, verse 23 reminds us that whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats a certain kind of food. Because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you do not trust God for the things that you do, then you are shaken up and you are determined by other forces and other foundations, then you are sinning against God. So the good intention of encouraging the weak by exposing them to try food offered to idols backfired. It caused them to stumble. So the first reason is that the food doesn't really mean uh, a lot to us. Either way, it's okay. But secondly, the indiscreet use of freedom damages the spiritual life of the weak brother. You know, in verse 11, he used a very strong word. Uh, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. What do you mean by that? Some people feel that it means they lost their salvation. But I think that's, that's overly strong to state that they lost their salvation. Because in verses 4 to 8, Paul reminds us that idols have no real existence. And in verse 8 says the food offered to idols is negligible. You can eat it or you, cannot, you, you don't have to eat it. Either way is fine. So those are insignificant experiences. It cannot be so strong that you will take away the salvation of an individual. I believe it means when it says destroy, it means that the weaker members is in the process of being ruined, being affected, that his faith 
is slowly ruined by being challenged to a situation that they don't have enough confidence to handle. And it is a stumbling block to their Christian sanctification. And Paul reminds them, don't do that because this brother is someone whom Christ died for. When you do that, you are opposing to the purpose of the atonement, is to make them in the image of God, is to call them to follow Jesus and be like Christ. When you do that, you are causing them to stumble. The first reason is that either way, eating or not eating is negligible. The second reason is that indiscreet use of freedom damages the spiritual lives of the weak. And third reason is that to avoid sinning against Christ. When we engage in encouraging others who had previous experiences in idol worship and say, try it, you know, go to the pagan temple and eat it. See, we're stronger. When you do that, you actually, you might cause sinning against Christ. Verse 12 says you skin, you sin against Christ. How, how could that be? When you sin against a brother, how could it be that you sin against Christ? Remember in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, when Paul was given a presentation of his salvation and calling testimony that on the way to Damascus, a light shone on him and a voice came out and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, actually Saul was persecuting the church. But remember, Christ is the head of the church and the church is the body of Christ. When you destroy the body, when you hurt and harm the body of Christ, the head is affected. So when you harm your brother, you are also sinning against God. Also in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus reminds us that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around its neck and he were thrown into the sea. The, the soul and the value of that little one is so precious that Jesus says, if you cause him to stumble, you, you'd rather not exist in this world. It's unthinkable. I can't accept that. And don't do that. You are despising the giver of life when you cause that little one to stumble. And based on that three reasons, why we should not engage in eating food offered to idol in a pagan temple. He concludes in verse 13. He says, Therefore, because of all these reasons, therefore, if food make my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I will give out food for the sake of my brothers and not cause them to stumble as they follow Jesus. So the message that I want to share with you to summarize my message today, is that our uncompromising stand in the uniqueness of God, that one God, that's no God but one, and the attentive care for the weak members will invite the body of Christ to grow together. The weak and the strong growing together if we stand strong in the uniqueness of God and if we give attentive care for the weaker members of the church. Now, before we go, let me give you three reminders. Number one, your brother is more important than your appetite. Okay, that's what Paul was saying. 
your brother is more important. Whether he's strong or weak, but your brother is more important than your appetite. And this is, a, this is really a reminder for us that humans are valuable in God's sight. We are valuable because we are God's creation. We are valuable because we are image bearer of God. And therefore, Psalm 8 says we are made a little lower than angels. That's how precious we are before the Creator God. We are precious because, because Jesus incarnated to come into this world to die on our behalf, to redeem us and to reconcile us with God the Creator, God the Father. We are precious because we are the center of God's redemption. Your brother is much more important than your appetite. You know, some Christians find it helpful to use the word joy as an acronym to remind us that our brother or sister are more important than our appetite. The word joy, the acronym joy is Jesus. J is Jesus first. O is others next. And Y is yourself last. J-O-Y, Jesus first, others next, yourself last. It's a way of reminding that our brother and sister are much more precious and important than our appetite. A second reminder, remember that we all have baggage. That's a reality. The Christians, the weaker Christians in the church in Corinth, they have baggages. They were engaged in idol worship, and that experience somehow still affects them. Though diminishing as they grow in Christ, but it does affect them, and especially when they are brought in a situation that somehow remind them of their former life without Christ. And we all have baggages. And it will be a great service to others if you prepare them for things that they wrestle with because of their background. As they serve, as they grow, as they fellowship together, it will be a great service to them if you remember their baggages. You see, some of us are more susceptible to addictions, different kinds of addictions. And some of us have weakness in finance. Money is a soft spot. Some wrestle with passions. It's hard to contain the passions for some. And some find it hard to control their tongues. Anything they know, any information they are aware of, they just can't help it. They, they just spread around. And we know that different people have different issues. Some may tend to give rise to pride. Any accomplishment, any achievement naturally drives them into prideful spirit. And others may succumb to emotional upheaval. They are much more sensitive emotionally. Their ups and downs is so much more wider and drastic than other people. Remember, we all have baggages. If you are sensitive to that, you can really serve them well by coming together. And the third reminder, gray areas are handled differently from different traditions, different places, different cultures. There are so many issues that we can cover in a short sermon like that. And there are some other passages that we need to consult with. For example, Romans chapter 14 talks about food, clean or unclean, and what can you eat and what you can't eat. Galatians chapter 1 and 2 talk about that. Gray areas. Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. In fact, it was advised to the 
Gentile Christians that you should not eat food offered to idols, but somehow it gets neglected in the church in Corinth. And all these passages need to be looked at for us to handle gray areas. But there are so many ways to look at gray areas. Now, even today, to take up vaccination or not to take up vaccination. To come back to worship or stay online to worship. To come indoor or not to come indoor. All these are gray areas. And there are other factors that we need to consider before we make a good, informed, and biblical response to how to take the, 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 the path forward. And some of the conventional ones like drinking alcohol, in some cultures, it is less an issue. In other cultures, it is an issue. The Bible says do not get drunk. But can you drink wines, alcoholic beverages? Uh, in some cultures, applying makeup may be construed, uh, may be considered as worldly behavior. But to us, it's like, hey, what's the problem? Wearing gold, jewelry, in some cultures, it's like a no-no. If you come to church, don't wear those jewelries. It is, it is a show of your compromise in your faith. You know, dressing. What is considered as suggestive? What is considered as proper? Listening to a certain kind of music. You know, even smoking or chewing tobacco. In a certain country, even pastors can smoke. Uh, the Germans, Lutheran church. The pastors, after preaching, after sermon, and some of them stand at the door, shake the hands of the members. They can smoke. To them, it's acceptable. To us, it's like, hey, this is a violation of a good character. Uh, playing online gaming, you know, in, in, in the Asian culture, especially in the Chinese culture, mahjong. Uh, mahjong to the immigrants is like, hey, that's a form of gambling. But to... A lot of us who grew up here, it's like, hey, this is a game. Like a chess. Buying lottery? Can we buy lottery? Is it a form of gambling? Or actually we are supporting education. You see, the world is so wise and so smart that they make a lot of things like either or. You know, it's both. And, and, and sometimes it, it tries to give us excuses of being engaged into those things. What is appropriate on Sunday? After worship and go for a picnic, for some culture and some people, it's like, no, no. You know, this is Sabbath. Others is like, hey, Sabbath is Saturday. Don't apply the Sabbath law into Sunday. Sunday is a day of resurrection. We celebrate. You know, and there are other, other things that I can't even list up here. My point is, we need wisdom. We need more information. We need consultation. We need to think more holistically as we look at gray areas. And we need to educate people and to provide responsible choice, oftentimes on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, someone gave a very good illustration. In the United States, the law permits that a driver to turn right at most stoplights, right? We don't have that in many, many countries, but U.S. is one of the few countries that allow a right turn at a stoplight, providing there is no oncoming traffic. So turning right into the oncoming traffic would pose a danger to other people or pedestrians. 
So the driver must make his or her decision to turn right or to wait on the basis of the welfare of everyone concerned, either the next driver or the pedestrians crossing that zebra crossing. In the same way, Christians must choose to exercise their liberty on the basis of the welfare of everyone concerned. And I believe that's the message in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. So, so in summary, be responsible to God, to yourself, and to others. Ground our Christian ethics in love and put others' well-being before our own, and yet without compromising what is truthful, the uniqueness of God will help us to deal with different gray areas of life. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful that even in one specific case of food offered to idols, it gives us some guidelines and some clarity on how to deal with gray areas. But Lord, we fully are aware that there are some other teachings and guidelines that need to be supplemented for us to look at different issues holistically. And Father, this is so real because every day, literally every day, we look at many, many gray areas of life. Father, we pray that in black and white situation, we will glorify you, but in gray areas, we will also please you. Guide us along the way as we continue to walk with Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.